you have to do your absolute best not to give up until you hit whatever lucky break is ahead of you. Something good is going to happen. Hi, welcome back to Office Chats, a podcast presented by Madam Blue. I'm your host, Valeria, and today we have a fun and refreshing startup story to share with you. Today's guests are Jordan Hicks and Victor Guardiola, the duo behind Paui, a sparkling agua fresca brand that combines the traditional flavors of Mexican agua fresca with better-for-you ingredients. As a side note, if you're a Spanish speaker, I highly recommend taking a look at their website, drinkpaui.com. They have a setting where you can navigate their site in Spanglish, which I found so funny and accurate. It's just a great depiction of how we as bilingual people sometimes talk and think. So definitely take a look at that and you can find Bowie in Sprouts nationwide as well as select Safeways, Albertsons, and Tom Thumbs along with multiple independent retailers in Texas, California, and Illinois. Today we'll dive into Victor and Jordan's entrepreneurial journey from starting Bowie in their college apartment to selling in retailers and building a community around their brand. We also discuss actionable tips for securing investments, so you definitely want to stick around to hear those. Let's get into the show. Victor and Jordan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. How did the two of you meet and start your entrepreneurship journey together? So Jordan and I actually met at ACC here in town. We met in a molecular biology class before we transferred into uh, our school of choice and formed a, a friendship. It was like 2019 when we ended up reconnecting and Jordan had landed um, a CPG sales role as I was incubating a CPG project of my own. So both of us were just like, let's ideate on something. And then we, we started talking about creating a, a ready to drink agua fresca and it kind of just ignited with the the timing of um, UT creating a food and beverage CPG entrepreneurship practicum and the, the community here in town being really nurturing to, to brands like ours. It seems like everything kind of aligned for the two of you to come together. Yeah, all thanks to that microbiology class. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to congratulate both of you because you were recently named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list for Austin, which is amazing. Congrats. What was your reaction to receiving that recognition and how have you seen it impact your business so far? Jordan and I have applied to pretty much every incubator, accelerator, grant competition for years, <laughs> and we just have a string of rejections behind us as many other entrepreneurs do. So whenever these things come up now, as we're a little more established, we're like, this is amazing. Awards like this, some of their biggest utility is just giving you more credibility. As a group of young entrepreneurs, it's kind of important for us to be taken you know, seriously within these business domains. So if an award like the Forbes list helps us do that, it's a net positive for us. That's great. And you shared that you were both in the CPG space when the idea for Bowie came to be. Can you walk me through the first steps you took to get your startup off the ground? I was trying to get my own 
a little CPG concept off the ground at the time. It ended up being a pretty shitty idea, but I had figured out kind of who to talk to here in Austin and what programs were available. And as I, I mentioned a little earlier, this food and beverage entrepreneurship practicum at UT became available. It had like eight spots. They pair you with mentors you present with weekly who are some of the CPG veterans here in town who have bought and sold companies like Waterloo, Sweet Leaf, Kettle and Fire, Cellucor, et cetera. So we took Bowie through that practicum and we kind of piecemealed everything together. Um, Jordan was working in sales at the time too. And sales is kind of the name of the game in, in CPG. So we had that piece taken care of from a, a go-to-market strategy and the other pieces we needed to get at uh, were more so uh, how do we produce this at scale and how do we fund this business? And by the end of the practicum, we realized that a better for you, culturally relevant uh, Agua Fresca really did have some form of market potential enough for us to want to validate the concept. And that's whenever we decided to fundraise and launch in, in farmers markets. What was it like pivoting from the farmer's markets to commercializing your products? When we were jumping from the farmer's market where we were hand pressing juice, fresh juice all the time into the commercialization process where we would be sourcing juices rather than pressing them. It was definitely a lot of trial and error. Um, and especially the carbonation standpoint uh, right at the beginning was, was something that was a little bit more foreign to us. My uncle who is pretty big in the homebrew scene over in San Antonio, had a lot of carbonation equipment and brewing equipment and kind of ran us through the process. And we stole a bunch of equipment from him and then just kind of figured it out ourselves in, in our, uh, our college kitchens with uh, all of our roommates at the time, which they were stoked on. Were there any memorable mishaps or challenges you faced while perfecting your recipes? Our first, I guess our like first carbonated, you know, Bowie run was with that soda stream that we we got. And I remember we had rolled back to Victor's apartment in West Campus, started, you know, crafting our recipe, got it ready to go in the in the soda stream. And um, I don't know if you've ever used a soda stream before, but it really only works with water, at least like the the OG soda streams and the first batch of sparkling pineapple bowie quickly exploded all over this this West Campus kitchen that, that Victor was in and was an absolute disaster. I, I think the whole place was sticky, probably even when you moved out of there. I mean, it was like on the ceiling. Just looking at each other in disbelief, like, oh my God, that that is my entire living room and kitchen. <laughs> well, y'all have come a long way from exploding soda streams. No doubt. How did you land on the initial batch of flavors that you offer today? There's so many um, wonderful traditional agua frescas out there that range from, you know, fruit juice based agua frescas to more floral based agua frescas. The biggest reason why we led with our, you know, fruit juice flavored agua frescas was those were the ones we were we were familiar with from a food science standpoint as well. They were a little easier to accomplish the core flavors we chose, the lime, pineapple, and passion fruit. 
they lend themselves quite well to being in a can and, you know, being shelf stable at ambient temperature. So we don't have to throw our stuff on like refrigerated trucks and absorb more expenses. But the goal is certainly to, you know, start with these refreshing fruit juice based flavors that more consumers are going to be familiar with. Mm -hmm. I like to ask that because on the surface level, you think, oh, these are just flavors that they probably liked, right? But there's actually so much thought and work that goes into deciding the initial like launch of your product. So that's interesting to hear and, and good for listeners to know as well, I think. Yeah. And so many entrepreneurs too, in, in the food and beverage space, like there's, there's a lot of wants we have in terms of like flavor innovation, uh, you know, the, the kind of product we actually want to bring to market. And then there's what's financially reasonable and operationally reasonable. And I know that you currently sell Bowie online and in retailers like Sprouts nationwide. Can you discuss your sales strategy and the steps you took to get Bowie into retailers and maybe any like lessons learned from that time? Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can jump in on this. Um, I'd say, you know, in our early days, um, our strategy was built around kind of conquering the Austin area market. And everyone always recommends, you know, pick a territory, pick a focused approach as far as who you're selling to and what retailers you want to get into. That's kind of what we did uh, in the early days. And it was great. It, it got our brand out there. We got sales. You know, we were able to do demos and just point people as far as, you know, where to buy us outside of just going to the website. However, early on, we had an opportunity with Foxtrot to uh, sell in a few more stores than we had originally anticipated in a territory that we had never sold in. And it was a spot on the shelf in Chicago. And luckily, it worked out really well which gave us some notion that Bowie had some legs to stand on in markets that one, aren't as familiar with Bowie, obviously, and then maybe two, aren't as familiar with Agua Fresca. I will say, uh, I definitely think you want to stick close to home for as long as you can. But, you know, if there's opportunities that present themselves that you think are worth the test or low risk, definitely take advantage of them as, as often as you can. Interesting. And that's awesome that y'all are seeing momentum in cities like Chicago, where consumers might not be as familiar with Agua Fresca compared to somewhere like Texas. What was your experience like seeking investments for your startup? And what advice would you give to other founders who may be struggling in that stage of business? This was definitely one of the, the trickiest parts. So many entrepreneurs from underrepresented backgrounds face a, a cold start problem where they're not able to get access to funding, it's really difficult to get off the ground because you need some form of seed capital. This issue kind of compounds because most small business lending is predicated and backed on household value. You borrow money against your house. And if your family's net worth is low, the difficulty in accessing capital or the burden for capital is really high. So you just see a lot less small business lending among a black and Latino communities whenever they're starting their business. I have never felt as many macroeconomic effects uh, of business as when we were starting Bowie. 
it, it was uh, it was tricky, but I I got my first job um, out of college at a startup here in town in a growth and marketing capacity. Within the growth capacity in particular, it really siloed me in on on fundraising. And I worked with the founder, this great guy, one of my good friends and mentors, a man named Clark Nowlin uh, at a company called Golden Ratio. And I, I looked at how he was raising funds and he was raising a lot of funds cold. So he had a great network of people he had met throughout the years, but the way he uh, organized his fundraising system, I knew I could add some value to it and create something custom for Bowie. So we, uh, we worked through the system Clark had, this little CRM he made in Google Sheets. We cleaned it up quite a bit. Uh, Jordan helped me out too because he worked in sales. What I had to figure out as a founder and what I suggest other founders, especially founders of color, is how can I package my messaging in a way that people I'm reaching out to will be receptive to? How can I get my foot in the door? Ultimately, what you're trying to do is just set up a call or set up a meeting. I think a lot of people put too much pressure on themselves whenever they think, I'm going to reach out to said investor and upon the first meeting, I'm going to run through my pitch deck. I think that's likely the wrong approach for early stage startups. And in actuality, whenever you reach out, you should kind of be wide eyed, you know, explain your story and explain why you're reaching out to them. A good example of this is um, our first significant investor was Patrick Terry from P. Terry's. The burger stand uh, guy here in Austin kind of got the ball rolling for us. And Jordan and I love this man to death as a side note, but we reached out to him because we wanted to see how he got P. Terry's off the ground and we wanted to see how we could succeed in food service. And oftentimes if you create a good relationship with these people, they genuinely ask you, what do you need help with? And oftentimes as an early stage brand, it's, I need help fundraising. Do you know anyone who might be interested in investing? That last question there, I think is something anyone who is fundraising should take note of because you're, you're never asking anyone overtly. And there are going to be times where you do have to ask people overtly, are you interested in investing? But a lot of the times in these sales type fundraising situations, you don't have to be as explicit and it even benefits you to not be as explicit and to not expect someone to fund your business. So it took a lot of the pressure off too, um, at a point where we were reaching out to hundreds of people. So for actionables, I would say, start within your community and look at the, the prominent entrepreneurs in your area who have launched their own companies and even exited who might be active angel investors if there are any organizations within town that have subject matter or sector expertise so within consumer goods there are organizations here in town that cater to them like naturally austin or skew with tech their their own organizations too like capital factory Figure out who's on the team. If there's a list of mentors, scrape that list of mentors, go on LinkedIn, uh, figure out what their emails are. And that's exactly what we did. If 
if I saw someone's name on, on a list on any of these websites, we would figure out their emails and we ended up getting connected with some awesome people who ended up being, you know, some of our first investors, our investor that followed Patrick was the founder of Torchies. And it was just an email, you know, that we guessed started off as that at least even Jerry Greenfield from Ben and Jerry's. He was one of the people we ended up talking to as well, but it was all just tenaciously sending emails and setting up meetings as many as possible. Patrick Terry's check and investment took about nine, 10 months for us to get. It was probably my 16th follow-up for him to take a meeting with us. But after him, in the next 90 days, we probably closed another 100, 150 grand in, in funding. And it, it was literally just the first domino. And that's how every financing round kind of works from, from what we've seen too. That's amazing. I feel like that whole story is the epitome of that that trending audio that's like never back down never what that's just all (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah 16 follow-ups in hindsight it's like you would probably do 60 follow-ups to get that investment but at the time I could see how it would be so easy to get discouraged after like five times okay they didn't reply I'm just gonna give up now yeah, and, and we we did get discouraged and, and that's why like I'm I'm really thankful to have a, a co-founder too because doing the shit alone is like really tough to look at yourself in the mirror and be like, Come on, baby, ten more emails today, twenty more twenty more cold emails today. But you know, if you if you have someone um by your side or, or a team, it's a lot easier to bounce energies off of each other. You know, someone's gonna feel hype at one point. While someone feels down and, and you just literally build off of each other and persist. But yeah, you're you're totally right. It, it is exactly like that that <laughs> audio because it took us two and a half, three years to to get our first investment. And I think Jordan and I may have had some conversations prior to Patrick's investment where we're just like, How much longer how much longer are we gonna pursue this? I just graduated during the pandemic and I, I might have to apply to Facebook or Oracle or some, some shit to, to pay the bills. But yeah, we, we literally just um, kept going. And at some point, something's going to happen. You just literally have to create your own luck. And the only way you do that is by trying. Yeah. And I appreciate the actionable advice too, because I feel like sometimes Um, investments can be kind of like cloak and mirrors in the startup world where people don't really want to talk about it. They just want to share after the fact, like, hey, we got this investment. But as far as like the struggle that it took to get there is less commonly shared. So I appreciate that. I'm glad we can share stuff like that because when we listen to business podcasts too, it was it was like a different story where people were just like, so we raised $2 million and Mm-hmm. got our concept off the ground but yeah, yeah it's 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 not like that for everyone well i want to talk about some of your marketing and community building efforts as well for bowie and how they've contributed to your brand's growth and connection with consumers we finally have a marketing team we're trying to uh, genuinely build better for you a latino beverage option and it's important for people to know that we are an Austin-based company with more authentic Latin heritage than your average 
Hispanic food and beverage company. We just did our first sponsorship. We sponsored the the Trans Pecos Festival and and Marfa because it has great alignment to our Texan slash Western roots. And we're also sponsoring a lot of uh, active groups, literally active groups here in town, running clubs, things like that, that kind of show our, our better for you leaning. So really all of these marketing events and this field marketing presence we're building up is just trying to find the events that have the customers we think are going to resonate with us sometime next year you're going to hear a little bit more about the austin specific initiatives whether it's like working with acl or south by or some other events happening in town but it's uh it's getting going now because we we want to be a bigger part of the communities we serve that's great you were saying your company is a better for you version of what's kind of like a, a staple in mexican culture and I've, I've recently interviewed the founder of I Love Chamoy, which is a better for you version of Chamoy. They're from South Texas, my hometown, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to me how like U.S. food and beverage pivoted to healthy versions so long ago that I'm just curious, like what your thoughts are on why Mexican food and beverage has taken like this long to kind of see the same pivot. I love this question. And I think the disparity we see between U.S. you know food and beverage innovation and Latin American food and beverage innovation is is truly the developing economies of Latin America include everyone under the list, including Mexico. They are going to be a little further behind in terms of innovation, and that's not even to mention the power of these consumer packaged goods companies within Mexico and Latin America that have really destabilized the health narrative for Latinos. And it's sad um, as a Latino consumer to see the resounding health impact. And they don't have much of an incentive to innovate if their core product lines are still selling really well. Like I grew up eating gancitos and drinking cane sugar Coca-Cola. So that was kind of my palate formation at a young age. And those are products that are incredibly widely distributed. Not only that, they're also nostalgic, like for Latinos. And as immigrants, these are some of the strongest touch points we have to our culture. It's like food and music. Of course, I want to pick up a product that makes me feel at home, but I can't pound gancitos, jaritos, and cane sugar Coca-Cola all the time. The other thing I'll say about it too, um, one of uh, our mentors, the um, organizer of this food and beverage entrepreneurship program, a woman named Marissa Epstein, um, she is a PhD in nutrition from Stanford, and she's uh, done and promoted research on early childhood palate formation. And uh, the research is quite interesting. Um, And what it basically entails is the foods we consume at a young age have a massive impact on our health as adults. So in lower income communities in the United States, certainly within Mexico as well, we have access to highly processed, not very nutritious foods. And if we eat these foods at a young age, it changes our eating habits 
So I think it's a big, meaty problem for entrepreneurs like us and Siete Foods and other Hispanic companies to tackle. And we hope we can grow to a size to compete with them within these markets and offer a valuable experience for Hispanic consumers, or we can signal that the market is evolving enough and consumers want better for you versions of the same products they're already creating. Either one of those options will be solid. And if they think they can acquire a company like ours, as they're probably looking at with other companies in similar shoes and scale them furthermore, I think that's a win-win situation. Totally agree with you as far as like those companies are not going away at all. So it's just a matter of companies coming up and either competing or signaling, like you said, but I'm not going to lie. There's definitely a couple gancitos in my freezer right now. <laughs> and I would, I would love if there was like a healthier option. So I'm glad that there are businesses like yours kind of allowing us to keep like the same flavors that we grew up with and that we love, right? But just not having to feel bad about eating and enjoying them. Absolutely. I know your team is growing. So maybe Jordan, you could speak to how you're structuring and thinking about that growth as far as what kind of roles and responsibilities you're hiring for. We're definitely more of a bootstrapped team still even today, uh, but we are bringing on more people. A lot of them are definitely kind of in the part-time, but slowly but surely you know, figuring out one, obviously how we can afford to pay people a livable salary, because that's first and foremost, very important, but to make sure that, you know, the business isn't as founder dependent. What we've been hiring in on is, is parts of the business that take up a lot of our time operations is one, one of the big ones. And once we kind of figure out, you know, what a uh, full-time capacity looks like, we'll probably be bringing on people less on a contractual basis and more of like a full-time capacity. If there's, if there's any of your listeners who, who want to break into the CPG um, industry too, or have CPG experience, Jordan and I have always been uh, super willing to, to chat with people. Um, and if anyone has a strong inclination towards the Agua Fresca category, we're always down to, to talk to people who are really hungry, uh, want some consumer packaged goods experience and, can help us out within a few of the business domains we're, we're building. But yeah, we're, we're like a teenage company right now where we can't hire people for, you know, a couple hours worth of work per week. Our requirements are a little larger than that, but they're a little lesser than full time. But realistically, what companies of our scale do to retain good talent to build these teams is you got to go through the growing pains of hiring people on full-time, building the systems you need and scaling the business as fast as you possibly can with keeping all of your financing and production needs in mind. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting juncture at Bowie. And it's, it's the first time in, in quite a while where we've had the, the resources to be able to, to hire people to lessen the workload on us as well and just make Bowie as this living, breathing thing um, a lot more efficient. That's awesome. I'm sure it's been rewarding to watch the team grow as well. How did the name Bowie come about and what does it mean? Yeah, so when we started this food and beverage entrepreneurship program 
we had to have a brand name to get started. I moved to the U.S. when I was two. My dad was a professor um, at Monterey Tech, but before that, my family's from Chihuahua, and the um, native peoples of the area are the Raramuri or the Taramara. Uh, they're the people who are known for their ultra marathon, super long distance running. And uh, I remember having a conversation with my dad, like, dude, I have, I have no idea what to name this. My dad's a very well-read guy. And I was like, what the hell are we going to name this? My only conditionals is it, it has to be a strong trademark with some cultural significance. And it, it took a few days, but he came back to me and he said, Bowie. And, and Bowie is the, the Raramori word for, for mineral water. Um, we have a slightly different spelling, but it hit our requirements. Like I wanted it to have Latin American heritage. I wanted it to be trademarkable, which I think is really important when you're deciding on a band, uh, brand name. Um, I thought it should have one or two syllables. And it was it was kind of perfect. And the the only reason we don't lead with the you know historical origin of the name too often is is we're trying to find a better way to contribute to that community, uh, so we don't essentially colonize like a name that isn't ours. And that's part of the reason why you won't find it on our website, and you'll probably only hear about it during podcast interviews, just because. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to bastardize like a beautiful historical name, especially in a category where consumers should rightly so be a little sensitive over Canadian tortilla chip companies using Aztec words in their, in their brand name. Like there's, there's stuff that we're okay doing. And this is a category of, of thing we are not okay doing until we find a way to contribute. That says a lot about your your brand values because you totally could, right? Like it's easy to do that from a marketing perspective, but it, you can tell like it, it means more so that it's important to just like be respectful and have a plan for yeah. the future. Yeah, and, and look at all these tequila companies. They, <laughs> no. they, they lean in. Yeah, like exactly. Tequilas and mezcals, they, they, they lean in um, hard and some of them unfortunately do do damage, but if anything, we wanna we wanna provide value. That's good. What is your long term vision for the company? My vision for for Bowie is to bring the agua fresca category to the masses. And the agua fresca category is, as you know, since you're from South Texas, is rich. There's a lot of innovation to be done within this set, and we barely scratched the surface. I'm excited for, for Latinos to have that representation within modern retail nationwide and eventually um, get into the Latin American market as well and uh, strike some fear in their hearts or give them inspiration <laughs> either or I think we'd be happy with. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Well, I like to close out each episode by asking our guests to provide a few words of wisdom. What is your biggest piece of advice for founders and entrepreneurs? You have to be pretty confident in the brand and at some point say, okay, yeah, we really do know what, we do, what we're doing. And it can be a lot more powerful to lean into some of these conversations by talking about all the things that you've kind of kicked ass in. But what I would recommend is, is trying to find that delicate balance between humility and self-confidence. Yeah, that's great advice, especially because 
you know, you don't have a boss who's like encouraging you. Good job. You know, like you have to kind of cheer yourself on and like be your own hype man. Um, so I love that advice. Absolutely. Victor, what about you? I I didn't want this to sound like a David Goggins motivational, um, quote series, but you have to do your absolute best not to give up until you hit whatever lucky break is ahead of you. And that could be, you know, getting your first investor, or that could be connecting with a specific buyer you wanted to talk with or an operation subject matter expert or a finance subject matter expert, but you literally just got to keep reaching out. And in addition to that, I think that the other important piece to all of this is um, you have to iterate. I think one of my uh, strengths as as an entrepreneur is being able to reach out to as many people as possible without getting embarrassed too easily. And if you do that enough and build a big enough network, you're going to get a good lay of the land of what does a good marketing team look like? What does a good ops team look like? What does a good financial team look like? How do these people fundraise? And if you have a hundred data points per category, you're going to be able to figure out, okay, these guys do this because of this and vice versa. So really just talking to a shit ton of people, as many as you can, but pulling trig and acting on whatever information you have in a timely manner. You don't want to be in the planning phase forever. And we see a lot of homies who are incubating their their CPG ideas kind of just stall out because they're waiting to finish the ninth slide of their pitch deck, or they're waiting to tweak their formula the smallest amount. So yeah, just keep trying and keep networking um, and don't stop iterating the entire time. And in a matter of no time, something's, something good is going to happen. Very true. And thank you both so much for joining the podcast. Before I let you go, where can people keep up with you and Bowie online and on social media? You can keep up with Bowie at drinkbowie.com and sign up for our email newsletter. The Easiest place to find us, though, is probably our Instagram, and that's at drinkbowie. And then besides that, um, I tweet occasional business stuff um, on my business Twitter account, and that's at vic.h.g. Yeah, if you want to reach out to me for business stuff, LinkedIn's usually the best way to do it. Uh, Victor is slowly but surely chipping away at my business twitter uh which i'm sure will happen eventually but uh yeah usually linkedin is best for me thank you so much to jordan and victor for joining the podcast and thank you to everyone listening i hope you join us next week for a new episode of office chats